0: How do you teach kids the ethics of artificial intelligence? It starts with not taking what isn't yours. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, October 20th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, our tech radio segment today has us in conversation with Kevin Smith of Dakota State University in Madison. We'll explore AI and chatbots in the classroom. How can teachers integrate an AI assistant? Joel Allen from Dakota Wesleyan returns with more on Braver Angels conversations in South Dakota. Laura Rohde heads to Augustana to meet a student, a professor, and the beehives of Augie. Plus, David Hirsrud and Larry Rohr send you into the weekend with fresh tracks and music, including a tribute to Jimmy Buffett. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. After a dozen years of service, a Rapid City Daytime Mission Center will stop serving homeless people. The Hope Center will close its doors after it was denied a permit to move to a larger facility. SDPB's Lee Strubinger has more.
1: The Hope Center says it serves anywhere from 200 to 300 people a day. It offers people a mailing address, access to a phone, storage, laundry, and food. It's also a space for people to socialize and network during the day. Melanie Tim is the executive director. She says she doesn't know how to direct those who depend on the mission.
2: I don't know where people are going to go. And I hate saying that, but that's the reality. I I don't know where people are going to go. No one does exactly what we do.
1: Tim says several factors are prompting the shutdown. The rent more than doubled for a lease that would only last one more year. And then the Rapid City Common Council denied a permit to move to a larger facility the nonprofit had already purchased.
2: It put us in a financial bind. So when the information went out to the public that the city did not grant our permit, um, our donations declined quite dramatically.
1: And so the Hope Center's last day for services is December 8th. Tim announced the closing at a recent morning devotion service. She says an elderly gentleman who is wheelchair bound responded to the news.
2: The room was just silent. He burst into tears and he said, You mean our family is breaking up? And I tried to assure him that we would do everything that we could to stay connected to him.
1: The number of daily guests increased significantly during the pandemic. The Hope Center's downtown facility has a maximum occupancy of 62, well below the two to 300 people they serve daily. The nonprofit received a donation to purchase a facility in North Rapid more than a year ago. Laurianne Peterson is president of the Hope Center board. She says trying to find the right location for the mission is difficult.
3: With the City Council's decision, um, they made it very clear that we're not appropriate for a neighborhood setting, and so that um, makes it hard to move in anywhere where there would be housing nearby. Um, We've also been been told often that we're not desired to be in the downtown area, and so without being able to be close to downtown or anywhere near residential, that kind of limits where we can go.
1: Most of the Hope Center's guests spend their time close to downtown. Other resources are also located in the area. Even if the Hope Center finds another space, Peterson says the permitting process would take over a year.
3: So no matter where we would go, We have to have the permit, which means we have to go back through that process. We have to work with the city, work with our architects and our engineers and our contractors. And um, if they're willing to help again with that um, to get the permit process done, um, and that's going to cost more money too and more time.
1: The Rapid City Planning and Zoning Commission recommended issuing the mission a permit for its new facility earlier this year. However, council members voted overwhelmingly against it. John Roberts is the council president. The rejected location for the Hope Center is in his ward. He was one of eight votes to deny the permit for relocation. Roberts says he heard overwhelming opposition to the proposed site.
4: Because this was a very difficult decision, I believe, for everybody on the council.
1: Rapid City Mayor Jason Salomon only casts a vote in council action when there's a tie. He says he's disappointed the center is closing. So while I was generally in favor, our police department wrote a letter of support for that move, but the council made a decision and I respect their decision. Uh, I could sit here and point fingers. I just try to think, okay, this this is a situation. This is reality. Where do we go from here? But I know that people are struggling. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about. This week, the city council and Pennington County Commission passed a resolution saying both governmental entities are committed to reducing homelessness in the community. Mayor Salomon says it's important to determine where to begin. The big thing for me is to to really assess where are we at right now? Uh, What's working, what's not working? Salomon says the next steps should include conversation with stakeholders to identify a community direction. That assessment for now will not include a physical location for the Hope Center. Melanie Tim says the organization will remain a nonprofit as it figures out a new plan and vision with the desire to provide services again.
2: It's pretty devastating for some of our guests to think about not being able to come here Monday through Friday multiple times. We have had various people say the worst part of the day is 4 o'clock in the afternoon when we close.
1: After the mission closes in early December, leaders hope to sell the building that was to be its new home. I'm SDPB's Lee Strubinger in Rapid City.
0: You can find and share this story online, sdpb.org slash news. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. When talking about the red and the blue in U.S. politics, the word versus often separates them, as in red versus blue. But for the Braver Angels organization, it's red and blue. The McGovern Center and Braver Angels are holding a series of fall events, bringing the two political polls closer together. They had one such event last Monday – They'll hold another next Monday. Dr. Joel Allen is a professor of religion and philosophy at Dakota Wesleyan University. He's also the director of the McGovern Center. Center. Alasia Underheil is a DWU student and a member of Braver Angels, and they are both joining us from the campus of Dakota Wesleyan University in the Dan and Diane Deslorious Family Studio. Dr. Allen, welcome back. Thanks for being here.
5: Thank you, thanks so much for having me back on again.
0: Alicia, welcome as well. Hello, thank you for having us. Okay, Dr. Allen, tell us a little bit. thank you for having us. Dr. Allen, tell us a little bit about the last event and how it was sort of set up. How do you set this up and plan it? You've had a lot of training to figure out how to make this go in a way that brings people together versus just creates further divide. Tell us about the planning.
5: Yeah, essentially we uh, invited people of different, differing political persuasions. Frankly, I was going after the more bluish crowd because, uh, because we live in a sea of red and I figured that we would have plenty of people on the, uh, the redder persuasion. Uh, come and so I wanted to make sure because our goal was to match people up one-to-one so that people could have a conversation across the political and cultural divide and it worked out great Uh, we only had a few people so we divided people up into three groups purple and we're Mm -hmm. using the typical language of the colors associated with political persuasions although that's you know it's very rough and ready but sure. uh so we had purple in one corner red in one corner blue in another corner and we matched people up just one to one and we ended up having uh great conversations it worked out so well and i was very nervous about how it would all play <laughs> out but and then we had guided uh, questions on the com- on a powerpoint and we went over so it ended up being a fantastic
0: evening did you find that people you know had a, a longing or a yearning for the kind of structure where they felt he, I need those guidelines. I need the bumpers to be on the, the bowling alley right yeah. now so things just don't go off in the gutter.
5: That, that's a good image, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what always worries me, that the that we'll kind of jump lanes and be bowling in someone else's lane. But uh, but it worked out great. Yeah, yes, the, the, the guided questions were very helpful. They yeah. were both, you know, you had to kind of ask self-affirming questions like what do I feel is our political persuasion gets right about uh, about our cultural experience and our in our uh, native conversations that we're having and then you have to flip it around and say what criticisms do other people have where I think that there's some justification to the criticism and so you have to kind of do you re, kind of reaffirm yourself in one sense and both people talk of course and then you have to challenge yourself as well so and everybody you know everybody was just they're great sports that everybody and we had some people (laughs) very very strong and very opposing positions but we had a fantastic time it was just really worth every minute
0: alicia what draws you to braver angels what did you want to bring to the conversation and really take home from it
6: um i really the thing i like about braver angels is the sense of unity that it brings um, among people even if they are Um, politically divided, Mm -hmm. uh, like even if they have different uh, political views, Braver Angels brings um, this kind of unity and a way for people to work together. It allows people to bring different perspectives to an issue and so I really want to be able to learn through Braver Angels, learn how to communicate better with people and how to engage in respective um, civil discourse. Mm -hmm.
0: Tell me um, a little bit about your perspective that, you know, you bring really that's from your childhood and from not always living in Mitchell, South Dakota. What do you bring to the table that you find is interesting to explain to people to say, hey, I think about this differently, but here's part of the reason why.
6: Um, Well, coming from the Philippines uh, brings a lot of it allows me to have really different views from people. And so I'm able to bring back a lot of my kind of cultural perspective on things. I have just completely different perspective on issues because of my family and because of where I come from in my culture. And so I like to, you know, be able to bring this new perspective on an issue and even hearing their new perspective on an issue that I never thought of before. And so just that difference, I don't always think a difference are bad things and so i really like um talking to people about uh where i came from and how that affects my views
0: yeah joel what you just said there the difference isn't the bad thing the difference can very much be the good thing say more about that did you see that kind of coming up in these in these conversations yeah
5: Right. I think, you know, once you look at another person that you have a strong uh, disagreement with up close, you know, it's it's very hard to to hate people up close and it's easy to demonize from a distance. It's Mm. just that's the way things seem to be. And so when you and, and typically in our culture, you know, we know we have big divides and either we argue about them or we don't talk. But we, we don't often have a context where you can have genuine conversation, where you really lay out your passionate perspective, and but in a context where you know that you'll be appreciated and respected at the same time. And so that's the kind of sweet spot that we're trying to, to, uh, to, to tease out. And it surprised me. We had a young man that came in. He's a reporter. Uh, from the Daily Republic newspaper. And mm-hmm. he ended up getting totally engrossed in the experience. <laughs> it was just so much fun. In fact, he and Alethea had a great conversation. And he ended up conversing with someone else that was. And, and Alethea, I did, don't know if you've mentioned, is more conservative. I am tend to be more progressive, and she tends to be more conservative and this fellow that it came in was more progressive and then a y- another young man about the same age was very conservative and they we had all these multiple conversations going following the prompts so though we didn't follow the prompts very closely <laughs> we ended up going our own direction but having very uh, engaged conversation over these very serious political divides so yeah it, it we, we i felt like we were able to hit that sweet spot pretty well you,
0: and
6: something you ha- I like about go right. ahead oh, yeah. oh, sorry no go ahead Yeah, something i like about Uh, Something I like about Braver Angels is that we're not necessarily trying to change the other person's mind, we're just
5: trying to
0: understand their perspective.
5: Yeah, Mm. that's an important thing to say.
0: Mm. How do you create a safe space? I mean, we've talked about a little bit with the structure, but also how are you monitoring Joel? Because for some people who maybe want to be in the conversation. Uh, you're talking about issues of identity there's trauma in the room there's you know some of these Mm -hmm. people maybe can't even have thanksgiving with their family and so they come to braver angels because this is a place where i might be heard but you have to create a moment where everybody feels uh, visible and they're also not not judged and and plain old not hated
5: yeah. Well I think uh what Alethea just said, we we lay down the ground rules right at the very beginning and there is a certain amount of self uh you know identification or or self-selecting, I should say, that happens. Uh, you know, people that are that don't wanna listen to anything else and feel like they have all the answers are just not gonna be very attracted to this. Sure. Uh and so so the people that tend to come tend to, you know, wanna have a conversation and wanna be Uh, listen and hear another side but also at the very beginning we lay down some ground rules and we really police I shouldn't say police them because we've never really had to ask someone to leave but we make very clear that the goal here is not to as as Elitia mentioned not to change anyone's mind but it's to listen in a context of respect and that we begin with the assumption that the other person is a reasonable person that they have um, that we can understand their reasons and that we can respect their reasons on some level even if we disagree yeah. And so once you kind of lay out those ground rules <clears throat> and the self-selection process happens, um, it, it, we, we've ended up you know, uh, de- developing, I think, a culture. And I, that's one thing that I felt really important about, you know, I feel like people can either be uh, cultural builders or they're, they're, uh, they're, you know, breaking down the binds that the the, the web that holds us together as a culture. And, uh, and so I, I felt, I remember on Monday night just looking around the room thinking, there's a lot of web building going on here. Yeah. There's a lot of the social binds and, and, um, and the things that hold us together are being strengthened in this room right now. Yeah. And we need a lot of that. But, but I feel like we had a good enough experience where we can build on it maybe next time. Uh, really uh, recruit more people to come.
0: Yeah. Well, that's very much what this show is about and what a lot of people across the state are doing. It's nice when we can get together and hear a little bit about the def- different ways yeah. that, that those kinds of conversations are bringing people together. The next Braver Angels event, Monday, October 23rd, 7 p.m. Central at yes. Dakota Wesleyan. I got to wrap up here mm-hmm. real quick, Joel, so I just want to let people yeah. know that topic. How can we best yes. revive our dying lake? Um, you can find yes. more at DW dwu.edu/live. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Artificial intelligence chatbots are tools that are changing lives and helping us all rethink thinking. Kevin Smith leads Dakota State University's Master of Science in Education Technology program. I caught up with him yesterday for a conversation about the program, the classroom, and the robots that are reshaping our lives. How do you set up a program in a field that's changing so rapidly?
7: Really good question. I think, you know, um, technology, it's a challenge uh, to do that. We have to really work hard to keep our finger on the pulse of what is going on with technology and education. So you know, I don't think there's a silver bullet to um, to do this, other than just um, paying attention, being diligent about what kind of things are happening in education, in technology. How do these things impact student learning? How do we prepare teachers to use these things? So I think it just is, um, you know, it just takes work and time to pay attention to changes and make sure that we're um, we're updating the program. So that it's uh, so that it meets the needs of of teachers and it prepares them to use technology in, in impactful ways.
0: I, I'm wondering if you could help us put into context because I think um, people who've been around for a while can get exhausted with the idea of how fast technology changes, and maybe we've forgotten how much we've already adapted, and we can we can in fact adapt to the, to the next thing. In fact, we invented some of these things. For people who are a little older or feeling a bit dizzy by, you know, new AI technologies, chat robots, all these things that are coming into the classroom, how do you help ground them in, hey, we have in fact been here before in some ways. There are some commonalities that we can apply to these new challenges.
7: Sure. I think, you know, like you said, technology is changing always and rapidly, and the only thing we know for sure is that it's going to continue to change. And we've been here before on, on lots of things. You know, if you think about um, even the iPhone, which it feels like maybe it's been around um, forever, it feels like you know, everyone knows how to use it. Um, you know, 2007 is when the first iPhone showed up. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and the iPhone itself has changed a lot, it's changed how we interact. Um, in our personal lives and our work lives and things like that. I just did a workshop uh, for, um, for adults that wanted some continuing education on QR codes, and that was another thing that QR codes, we see them all around us, um, but something that um, you know hasn't been around that long, and all of a sudden, um, it shows up, and people have to learn what it is and adapt to using it and, uh, and learn how to use the tools to to use it to, to, to make sure that um, they understand what it can do for them.
0: Yeah. Um, I mentioned, uh, you know, chatbots or chat GPT. Teachers have to think fast and act quickly on policies for how to integrate that into the classroom. Tell me a little bit about the potential of some of those technologies right now in a classroom.
7: Sure. I think, you know, artificial intelligence has... Um, Huge potential. That's why we're hearing so much about it right now. This is a technology that has really—it's been around for a while, but ChatGPT has made um, it—you know—has really brought it into the spotlight because of what ChatGPT kind of does and how easy it is to use. Um, So AI in general has a lot of potential to to really. Um, help teachers and help students learn uh, you know I try to get my students to think about uh, chat GPT as a teaching assistant so how could they use this uh, this AI tool to help them become more efficient to help them come up with new ideas for their students uh, so those are, that's kind of how I try to frame it for my students is to think of it as a uh, as a teaching assistant, that could potentially help them.
0: I'm curious about when it hurts them, because um, having you know outsourcing your work, whether you're outsourcing it to a um, you know a human assistant or or, or a human assistant, or a, an artificial intelligence assistant, means that you're not always learning, um, and acquiring your own knowledge but yet you are learning how to use the tools what kinds of conversations do we need to be having about how teachers are using that to do their planning for example
7: yeah that's that's a really good that's a really good question and thought you know I think um, you know chat GPT and AI it's not going to replace good teaching um, the, the human element is still so critical and so important. Um, we as humans have to um, use our critical thinking skills to evaluate the kind of things that GPT gives us. So if we give it a prompt and it turns around and says, hey, here is a really good lesson idea for your students. I think we as teachers, as professionals, we have to look at all of that information with a critical eye and make decisions for our, for our students um that that are aligned with best practices you know and we do that we do that now all the time when we look at curriculum and we when we look at resources that we might use in the classroom so to me this is just like another resource that we use and we can't assume because it was generated by a computer that it's perfect and it's always accurate that's where as a human we have to still play a really central role in using our critical thinking skills to see if it does make sense uh, for our students and for their, you know, our individual situation.
0: Do, what's the role of transparency in that? When do you reveal, you know, to your colleagues, to the administration, maybe even to your students, that this particular lesson plan was assisted with this technology? Does it matter? What's the conversation around transparency?
7: you know i i personally i think it's good to be transparent uh, about how you're using chat gpt and what you're using to come up with ideas for your classroom um i think that that we should be transparent in that way in fact i was just reading an article uh, that talked about um uh you know us uh higher ed in the higher ed world we're trying to you know publish our research and it talked about using chat GPT and the role that it played in publishing your research and you know it doesn't want you to um, use chat GPT to you know to write up your summary results but you might use chat GPT to help you analyze data Um, so the the thing that it the thing that it said was you have to be transparent about how you've used chat GPT in your research so I think that applies Um, In the classroom, too, I think it's fine to tell um, your colleagues, your administration, even your students, like, hey, we're going to do this activity. And if you want to tell them where this activity came from, telling them that it came from this tool is fine. Again, you know, the human is such an important part of this. You have to look at things with a critical eye and make sure that it makes sense and that it's accurate.
0: What are some of the pitfalls that you're seeing that need to be navigated?
7: Well, you know, the first thing I think that comes up in education is when when ChatGPT came out, um, people thought, well, you know, kids are gonna, students are gonna use this to cheat. They're gonna use this to write their papers. They're gonna use this to solve their math problems. And I think that's a, you know, that is a real problem and it's something to think about and really consider what are the implications of this technology on how students learn. So um, I think there are things we can do about it, but I definitely think it's a concern and it's a pitfall. Um, and it's just just like any time a new technology comes out, there are things like this that we have to consider. You know, when we first, um, you know, when search engines first came out and we were able to do searches um, and look through lots of data and find things, there was the potential there for students to be able to do a Google search and find a paper and pass that off as their own. And so um, every single technology I feel like has some of these potential problems. And so again, the human plays such an important part of this. We have to think about how do we, how do we combat that? How do we prevent cheating? How do we um, prevent students from using this to generate you know, papers and, and um, make sure that they are in fact doing the work themselves and learning?
0: One of the things that I think drives students to use shortcuts is the anxiety of not being able to do the work and sort of sitting in that space of learning that can be really hard. And, of course, math (laughs) is one of those areas. And I think math is this place where a lot of people are just plain afraid of it. Um, But then there have been for a long time time, these tools, you know, calculators and adding machines and just different ways that you could get assistance for that. But when is it important to wrestle with the material yourself and how do you help kids figure out how to do that in a way that helps them overcome their anxiety by mastery, but yet also teaches them how to use the tools? I feel like you, with your particular background, would have an insight into that that maybe I haven't heard yet.
7: Yeah, that's uh, – you know, that's – your what you described is very real, and, and definitely math is my area. Math and technology are my two areas, so I, I think a lot about math and how people interact with math and their – the math anxiety that so many people have. And so um, – and, and why do they – why do students gravitate to tools like this? Like you said, um, it can provide a shortcut. It can be a safety net for them if they – don't feel confident in what they're able to do so those things are very real i think as an educator i think one of the most important things we do is build strong relationships with our students and through those strong relationships hopefully we're able to have conversations with them to reduce anxiety hopefully hopefully we're able to really um have an understanding of what they are good at and what they are not good at and really try to get them to embrace the idea of developing a growth mindset and get them to develop um, an appreciation for learning uh, and try to teach them that, you know, using tools like this to shortcut um, certain things can definitely compromise learning. And, you know, that's kind of an idealistic view to think, well, kids are going to, you know, students are going to just um, do it because they want to learn. I, I get that some students won't want to do that, but I think sure. as a teacher, if we can really build strong relationships with our students, um, we have a better chance of getting them to really appreciate learning and um, to to see technology like ChatGPT as a tool that they might use uh, to help them learn. You know, maybe, maybe they use it Uh, as as an assistant, just like a teacher does, maybe they use it to help them get ideas, but they they use their own critical thinking skills to, um, you know, to assemble a paper um, or or whatever it is. So um, I hope, you know, like I think think most teachers would agree, I think at the heart of good teaching is a really strong relationship. And I think that comes into play with technology tools, just Uh, as much as anything.
0: What kinds of questions have come up in your conversations just this week? What are the themes that resurface again and again when people talk about AI in the classroom in particular?
7: Well, you know, I mean, like I said, I mean, cheating is a concern, right? So uh, people are, you know, worried like students are gonna just use this to do their work for them. So we, you know, conversations around how do we, how do we prevent this? How do we stop it? So, you know, we've talked about, you know, the, the, the piece about knowing your students and developing a relationship. That's part of it. You know, if we know our students and we kind of have an idea what they're capable of, if they turn something in that was totally generated by AI, mm-hmm. hopefully that would, we would, there might be some red flags that we might be able to identify some of the, you know, we might be able to say, well, this doesn't look like that, you know, the, this isn't consistent with what this student has been doing. I think it, you know we've had conversations i've had conversations with colleagues about how do we structure questions um, how do you know do we ask students to simply summarize something that they read or do we do we structure our questions a little bit differently to they summarize what you've read but also connect it with your own uh, life experiences and maybe by doing that uh, you can't just simply use an ai to generate an answer we've also had conversations about what kind of tools are out there what kind of detection tools are out there to prevent students from doing this and right now um, based on what i've talked to my colleagues about the consensus is that there aren't great tools yet for detecting ai Um, but that doesn't mean there won't be you know i there are tools out there that will detect plagiarism uh, and i think we'll see um, tools. Um, you know, I think we'll see advances in tools that can detect AI. Um, so I think it's definitely worth, you know, um, you know, paying attention to what happens there. And then the last thing is we've had conversations about the importance of teaching students uh, ethical behavior. And that's just true across, you know, all areas of our life is just thinking about being ethical and, you um, and that, you know, using technology in ethical ways is such an important part of how we interact with it. And I think as teachers, we need to have those conversations with students and really strive to get them to appreciate how important it is to use technology in ethical ways.
0: Make a connection there for a, a K through K-12 teacher, especially an elementary school teacher, that's focused less on, less on maybe academic honesty, but still gets at that ethics conversation. Like, how do you talk to kids about the ethical use of technology?
7: Yeah, that's just a good question. I think, you know, a great place to do that is even at the earliest, you know, in in early grades, um, we're having students show us what they know using different multimedia tools. So, you know, create a video to show us what you know about photosynthesis Um, And when they do that, oftentimes one of the first things that students do is they go to Google and they look at images and they start to grab images and put that in their video. And that's the perfect place to begin this conversation about ethical use. You know, we should be teaching students that those images, um, we don't have permission to use those. Even if it's used in an educational setting, someone else created it, and unless there is, you know – copyright permission associated with that that would allow us to do it, we really shouldn't be using that. Um, And we certainly should be attributing um, the source, you know, providing Mm -hmm. attribution about where this came from. So um, that might, you know, I think the language you use with really young kids is a little different, but I think just telling them like, hey, you can't just go grab something that's not yours and put it into a project that is yours. So I think that's a good place to start in terms of kind of ethical use.
0: Kevin Smith teaches at Dakota State University and leads the university's Master of Science in Education Technology program. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. In 2022, an old city ordinance that did not allow institutions to raise bees within city limits was changed. That was thanks to the advocacy of Augustana faculty and students and a vote by the Sioux Falls City Council. Augie is now home to hives full of honeybees. Laura Rodi wanted to understand how an apiary impacts education, so she spent a few hours on campus with a professor and student beekeeper
4: on in. Embarrassingly comfortable. Would you care for her?
8: Although the topic of our conversation is busy collecting pollen outdoors, the windy day forces us inside. Seated on comfortable chairs in the cozy office of Augustana professor David O'Hara, O'Hara and senior Janae Beecher visit about how and why the campus of South Dakota's largest private university became home to two colonies of honeybees.
4: We received a a generous grant from a regional philanthropy. What that allows me to do as Director of Sustainability and Environmental Studies is to empower students like Janae, our head beekeeper, to start up new projects. So Janae and several of her classmates had this idea, what if we raised bees on campus? What would we need? And they described the apiary, they described beehives, and I got to help them to build that, but it's really the students who lead on these things.
8: Surrounded by dormitories and other three-story buildings, the apiary, or stack of wooden boxes that house the beehives, is located inside a locked wooden fence near a grove of trees and a large vegetable and native plant garden. The garden is another student-led project. Although O'Hara does conduct in-class lectures focused on sustainability and the environment, He said learning would not be complete without these hands-on components.
4: I think that good education is kind of a friendship and sometimes almost like uh, a romance with an idea. Uh, If you are only thinking about it, if you're only thinking about the beekeeping, you're only thinking about sustainability, but not actually doing something to practice it, it would be like reading music, but never playing an instrument. We really believe in educating the whole person. And that means getting people engaged in their studies and doing things that will make a positive and lasting difference for their community.
8: Maintaining the hives and caring for the honeybees takes a bit of coordination, explains Beecher. She is the head beekeeper and a senior majoring in biochemistry, environmental studies, and German.
9: There's four of us and depending on how many can make it that day, we'll decide on a day and we try to go out midday when, the bee, when it's usually the hottest but that's because we want to have the least amount of bees in the hive. Around noon they're all out trying to forage and so we don't have to deal with as many in the hive and it greatly decreases our chance of having problems or like getting stung or squishing bees or other things like that and it just allows us to get in and out of the hive quicker. And once we go in we'll get suited up We'll start the smoker. We make sure that it's going really solidly, and so while one person's getting dressed, the other one's...
8: The students fill up the bees' sugar water, and with one student holding the smoker, another student opens the hive and pulls out each frame one at a time. Together, the student beekeepers analyze each frame of the hive and document their findings. With bees, I'm able to connect
9: easier just because I can see what they're doing in front of me, and I can see that they're interacting with each other. And seeing that kind of community really piques my interest. Beecher became so enamored with bees that in addition to her already heavy
8: three-major class load, she began studying bees on her own. And she joined a local beekeeper club to learn from other beekeepers. Beecher even spent the last three summers studying the microbiome of bees. Her connection to bees changed her career and academic focus.
9: Originally, when I came to school, I was like, I'm going to go and be a researcher, and I'll probably go to graduate school to, like, be a professor and do research and have students in my lab. But that's slightly changed just because... I like bees, and I want to be outside. I don't want to be in a lab all the time. I know that this, my professors listening will be like, oh my god, Janae, what the heck? Why? This is totally different than what you've said. And I'm like, I know, but but like it's changed really so dramatically just because of like this experience I've had with being outside and being able to connect with nature and connect with the surroundings around you and how that really impacts mental health, but then also your greater purpose and making a difference in your community. And I found that I really want to do that and make a difference and uh, kind of do what we're doing now and do outreach and do education. With only two semesters left at Augustana, Beecher is currently
8: researching entomology graduate programs and plans to focus her graduate work on bees. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura Rohde.
0: Go online to see the bees. sdpb.org. Now let's get right to our next episode of Fresh Tracks with new items for your consideration ranging from an anniversary essential, a remaster, a fundraiser, and a fond farewell. Larry Rohr and David Hersrud are your musical guides.
10: We're going to do uh, an essential. We're going to do a remaster, a fundraising album, and what I will call a very sentimental an emotional ending, so stay with us. Let's start with that essential. You mentioned a couple of groups here that I wasn't that familiar with, one of which is the Postal Service.
11: Yeah, this is the first and only album by the Postal Service. And an album called Give Up, which became the biggest album in the history of sub-pop records after Nirvana's 1989 album, Bleach. The group consists of producer Jimmy Tambrello. Jenny Lewis, who's a vocalist for Ryla Kylie, and Death Cab for Cutie singer, songwriter, guitarist, Ben Gibbard, But they have gone out on tour with Death Cab for Cutie on the 10th anniversary of the album's released, and now on the 20th anniversary. This is one of those albums, let's put it this way, that, you know, has a couple of maybe wasted songs on it, filler, I would call. But the rest of it is so good that it makes my list of one of the best albums I've ever listened to. of the album, Tabrello and Gibbard never were in the studio at the same time. Mm. That's the way the whole album was done, which I think is kind of an interesting way of doing it. It still sounds wonderful. You know, 20 years later, uh, I think that says something.
10: Mark Broussard is back with an album called Blues for Your Soul, and this is an SOS number four Remind us all about the S.O.S. theme and his intention with, with these albums and the guests.
11: This is a charity album, but there's a difference because I think you probably know as well as I do a lot of what I would call charity albums. You know, you listen to them once and you never play them again. What Mark has done with this is he's the focal point in it.
1: Baby,
5: we got to have a little talk to pack up
11: my things and talk. No a dollar go from hand to hand. But before you go from man to
0: man, I'd rather drink money water. That's a truth, funny sleeping in a hollin' log. She said, why? I said, this is why.
11: And what he's trying to do is raise money for some of the charitable organization that he works with, one called Guitars Over Guns, and he works a lot with underprivileged youth. I'd
10: rather drink muddy water,
11: and that goes back to Lou Rawls. One of the things I really like about this album is that Broussard is working with uh, blues rock guitarist Joe Bonamassa, who is absolutely one of my favorites. Yeah. This
10: is from the group Exploding Hearts, Uh, Guitar Romantic, quite a story behind the group, and bring us through that story and up to the remaster.
11: They were formed in Portland, Oregon in 2001, and they played a combination of punk rock and power pop, and they had just released an album, and they were doing some touring, and they went down to San Francisco, did some shows, And we're headed back to Portland when their van crashed and three of the four members of the band were killed. That is so sad in and of itself. The album, Guitar Romantic, the main song was called Modern Kicks. what this band would have been able to do because they were punk was kind of changing power pop was coming in and they were one of the bands that seemed to bring the two genres together they did it and did it well and guitar romantic has now been remastered and is out with a couple of additional cuts that i think are, are are great the story is very timely
10: anything behind the remaster what prompted that where it came from
11: Maybe it says something about the quality of the music that's out there now, but you're finding a lot of smaller labels who will go out and find albums that were overlooked or haven't been, re- been digitally remastered and are, are now coming out. I have to tell you the number of times that I've pulled up an album or a song, listen to it, and go, wow, that's great, and then you find out it came out 20 years ago. <laughs> Okay. Well,
10: talking about legacy, you know, we've got to take a few minutes with Jimmy Buffett, who passed not long ago, and actually something for Parrot Heads to look forward to in early November.
11: Yeah, there's a new album, Equal Strain on All Parts, which comes out November 3rd. But the one thing I found with Jimmy Buffett is his music says it all. And I think Bubbles Up is one of his best songs
4: when your compass is spinning and you're lost on the way like a leaf in the wind friend hear me when I say bubbles up they will point you towards home no matter how deep
10: or how far you roam if there is one song and the message that it sends to Buffett fans right now who are wondering, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to see him again. This is perfect. He's
11: going to be missed.
10: For your essentials, take a look at the Postal Service, Such Great Heights. The Postal Service is, should be part of that essential music list in your library. Raise some money with Mark Broussard. It's SOS 4. I'd rather drink muddy water. There's a remix on... The Exploding Hearts, Modern Kicks, and let's Bubbles Up with Jimmy Buffett. Thanks, David.
11: Hey, take care. Good listening.
4: So when the journey gets long Just know that you are loved There is light up above And the joy is always enough Bubbles up
0: That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. If you want to go find those Fresh Tracks offerings in the future, go on our website, sdpb.org music. On the next In the Moment, that's Monday, the documentary series Native America returns to PBS with groundbreaking portraits of contemporary Native America. We welcome sustainability builder Henry Redcloud to the program. We'll take a look at his role in the series. Plus, everyone deserves a relationship free from domestic violence. We'll talk with Sioux Falls Police Chief John Toom about safety, recovery, and police response. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.